0: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and NA, member FDIC. Hi, this is Paul Rubens, and you're listening to the Pantheon Podcast.
1: And all that great My automobile is a piece of crap My fashion sense is a little whack And my friends are just as great as me I've been in gold school in schools Pripy girls never looked at me
2: Why should they? I don't want to get We are kind of close to Beverly Hills Traffic permitting Okay, no, we're not we're stuck in Culver City. Nestled between an abandoned Petco and a cannabis dispensary called Weed, with five Es, is a television production office, you know, bustling with the energy of people who'd rather be working remotely. Let's, uh, stroll on in. We'll give a friendly nod to the impossibly attractive receptionist. She's not really paying attention. She's busy filming a TikTok, you know, duck-facing in her Daisy Jones outfit. So we'll just head on back to the writer's room. A big table uh, buried under a mountain of coffee cups, dirty utensils, and containers from a salad place called Green's. Uh, Also with five E's. The, the showrunner, uh, that's yours truly, takes a seat at the head of the table. Four staff writers, laptops open, are ready to pitch me ideas. Let's meet them real quick. Danny Failson is uh, basically an incompetent goofball, but he's my boss's son-in-law. Liz Limer, uh, she's my rock. Very hardworking, very talented, and very tired of carrying her boneheaded male colleagues I hear you, Liz. Joe Conrad. Hey, hey, he's competent. We go back to our college years, but he kind of sucks up to Donnie and the mistaken belief he has actual clout due to his family ties. And finally, Heller Joseph, who, senior on the staff, a career writer with lots of credits, and currently questioning all of his life choices. That's what he All right, people. So the head of the network, Drunk, dialed me at 3 a.m. last night. Uh, you know we've been working on this show based on my experiences growing up with my grandparents in Tulsa? Yeah, yeah we've we, been working yeah. on it for like uh-huh. three weeks. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, he's spiking it. Oh, God. I guess they want a show about rock and roll now. Oh, shit. What, what are what? you talking Sh- about? Why? It's serious. Uh, yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. Okay, all that work down the drain, but... That's what the boss wants, so...
0: Any ideas? Well, people seem to love rockstar biopics, but I don't think anyone's done, like, a Boz Skags yet. And that, That's kind of a funny name, too, right? Like, like Boz Skaggs? Uh-huh. We'd have to get the story rights, and that can be hard. Plus, we have to stick to stuff that actually happened, and none of you guys do proper research. And the whole biopic thing is played out. Let's be original. What if we create a fictional rock band instead and tell their story? Yeah, yeah, that, that's pr- that's pretty good, and, and one of them could be named Boz. Ooh, I like that. Guys. See, Boz is a funny name, and maybe they could all be named Boz. No one's being named Boz. I mean, look, I like the fictional
1: rock band idea. I say we go with that, but that's a lot of work, too. We've got to write a show, and on top of that, we'll need original music that sounds and feels authentic.
0: Plus, it's got to fit the period. We'll need some help. Hey, at cla I could throw a rock in any direction and hit a talented musician. That's your solution to everything, throw a rock at it. You know, somebody could get hurt, you know? Uh, oh, you God, just... Nepo, baby. Okay, so we get some musicians to help. Now, what if the show had a narrator? Right,
1: somebody outside of our made-up bed who chronicles their rise and fall, Like a journalist or a filmmaker,
0: maybe give it the form of a documentary or retrospective. Yeah, like one of those shows on VH1 back in the day. Or it could be more personal, like a love letter or remembrance. That could work too. Good stuff. How do you feel about a coming-of-age story? A journey. How do you feel about a bossing of skags story? Okay, you are out of your element, Donnie. Enough with boss skags. Like I was trying to say, a journey. Both metaphorical and real. Bands go on the road, right? It's a natural storytelling device. We could throw a rock at the tour bus. He said one more job, to get it. One last shot, before we quit it. One One more More. row, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm taking my lunch now. I'm right behind you. Do you want to go to Sweet Greens? Let's do it. Podcast is intended to be education and commentary. It will discuss adult themes and may use coarse language. Pantheon Podcast presents rock and roll archaeology with host Christian Swain. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. And now, on with the show.
2: Hello, friends. Christian Swain here. I'm the Rock and Archaeologist, and it's time for another RRA short. We had some fun with the top. Uh, hope you did as well. We're going Hollywood, people. Uh, started with the team having a general discussion, griping about how there were no good rock and roll movies, but That's not exactly true. There are some great rock and roll movies, but there are not enough of them for us. (laughs) We want more. I'm sure you do as well. Then we kind of narrowed it some. Uh, What about shows that tell a story using a fictional rock band? Uh, Now, name some good ones and discuss. After no small amount of back and forth, uh, we landed on two films and a TV series. In chronological order, they are Rob Reiner's This is Spinal Tap, Cameron Crowe's Almost Famous, and the recent miniseries on Amazon TV, Daisy Jones and the Six, written by Taylor Jenkins Reid and produced by Scott Neustetter and Michael Weber. So, one from the 80s, one from the early aughts, and one very recently, 2023. 2023, huh. Uh, Since we're talking about movies and TV, and since it's 2023, we'll pause briefly to comment on the Writers Guild of America strike, which now has been joined by the Actors Union SAG-AFTRA. Here is our official statement in full. Thank you. And thank you, little Steven. Well, we'll now do the obligatory spoiler alert. Um, chances are you've already seen Spinal Tap, Almost Famous, and Daisy Jones, but if you haven't, we strongly recommend all three of them. Uh, they're easy to find online. Go check them out and come on back. We'll be waiting. And, of course, you can chime in on your own impressions and give us your take. Uh, rockandrollarchaeology.com has the links to our socials. We'd love to hear from you. All right, let's let's um, let's do a little plug. Uh, we love this website, and we use it a ton. It's the incredible online archive called Rocks Back. Pages.com. we are happy subscribers and we recommend it to everybody that's rocksbackpages.com uh there's a link on the front page of our website uh, if you uh, would like to go over there and check it out all right shout out to joe quazala from who cares about the rock hall podcast on the pantheon podcast network uh, you know one of our sister shows joe Pitched in uh, as a contributing writer for this episode. So thank you, Joe. Finally, we're dedicating this to a recently departed friend of the podcast, the rock and roll uh, swashbuckler Sam Cutler, tour manager for the Rolling Stones and the Grateful Dead. Sam's in uh, chapters 18 and 19 of the main show, and we consulted with him on many other occasions. So Thank you, Sam, and may the four winds blow you safely home. All right, that's the business. Let's get on with the show. Welcome back to another RRA short. Uh, this one's called Celluloid Heroes. Well,
1: you can see all the stars as you walk.
2: Let's start with our favorite, best in class, for a story about a fictional rock and roll band, Almost Famous, written and directed by Cameron Crowe and released in 2000. In 2000, Cameron Crowe was finally on a roll. After making his mark as a music journalist, while he was still just a teenager, he was now about 20 years deep into his second career as a screenwriter and filmmaker. For the first decade or so, Crow experienced modest success with filmmaking. His work was generally well-received by the critics, did okay in terms of box office, but no blockbusters. (laughs) Then he wrote and directed Jerry Maguire, released in 1996. It was a smash, a giant hit with critics and public alike that became a 90s cultural touchstone. Jerry Maguire established Cameron Crowe as a player in the film and television industry, someone with juice. I'm still
1: on the other line, I better hear you say it!
2: Yeah, yeah, no, 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 show you the money!
0: Not, not show you! Show me the money! Show me the money! Yeah! Louder! Show me the money! That's it, brother, but you got to yell that shit! Show me the money! I need to feel you, Jerry! Show me the money! Jerry, you better
2: yell! Show me the money! Cameron used his newly won clout to convince DreamWorks Studios to back him on a passion project, a personal story. Almost Famous is a semi-autobiographical tale drawn from his own experiences as a teenager in the mid-1970s. Starting at just 15, Cameron hit the road with the Allman Brothers, the Eagles, Led Zeppelin, and many other groups, and he wrote up those experiences for Rolling Stone and Cream magazines. Almost Famous was a commercial bust. In its initial release, it lost millions for the studio. Cameron Crowe's juice was never the same after that. In the end, it worked out okay. Syndication to cable, DVD and Blu-ray sales, streaming and downloads eventually recouped the investment and then some. But in Hollywood terms, that still means Almost Famous was a flop. Cameron Crowe has said many times since that he is totally fine with it all. It was the story he always wanted to tell, and he got to tell it his way. Not a lot of folks get to do something like that. All the way back in episode one of Rock and Roll Archeology, span we name-checked Almost Famous as one of our favorite films of all time, and we still feel that way. Uh, The writing really shines. In 2001, Cameron Crowe took home a well-deserved Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay. There's also some elegant cinematography. Check the scene with William and Penny when they're talking outside after the concert in San Diego. Their faces are beautifully shot. The early morning scene on the tour bus after the Tempe, Arizona concert opens with a gorgeous shot of the desert sunrise before we go interior. Great great stuff. The direction is brisk and the editing keeps things fast-paced and fun. The story is humor and heartbreak and the ring of truth to it. At the center of this bittersweet remembrance is a fictional rock band called Stillwater. We're going to drill down into that aspect of Almost Famous. Let's talk about how Cameron Crowe and his team created to quote uh, a line from the film, a mid-level band struggling with their own limitations in the harsh face of stardom. Our first good look at Stillwater comes pretty quick, less than a half hour into the movie. Crow's shot recreates the cover of the Neil Young live album, Time Fades Away, right down to the little detail of a solitary rose at the foot of the stage.
1: Would you please welcome from Troy,
2: scene is as good as anything we've ever come across in film. Crow and his team vividly recreate the excitement of the opening moments of a rock concert experienced from the backstage vantage point. It's absolutely thrilling. The band you're hearing is the Stillwater Rhythm section backing up Mike McCready from Pearl Jam playing a song written by Cameron Crow and his then-wife Nancy Wilson from the band Heart. Nancy Wilson was the musical director, and she wrote all the incidental music, along with most of the Stillwater material. Um, Peter Frampton kicked in a co-write on a couple of the tunes. The band you're seeing is two actors playing musicians and two musicians playing musicians. Jason Lee as lead singer Jeff Beebe and Billy Crudup as guitarist Russell Hammond are the actors. Mark Kozilek is a real professional bassist, and he played Stillwater bassist Larry Fellows in the movie. Stillwater's drummer, Silent Ed Valancourt, is played by their real, no-kidding drummer, John Fedevich. Prior to shooting, the four of them lived and rehearsed together for six weeks in L.A. Coming into the film, Crudup was a beginner guitarist, so he took private lessons and was extensively coached by Peter Frampton to prepare for the role. Jason Lee said he copped his Stillwater stage moves from Paul Rogers, the power singing frontman for Bad Company. Well, I mean, if you're going to emulate a 70s lead singer, uh, that's a good one right there. The actual singer in a studio... Is a cat named Marty Fredrickson, and he kills it. <laughs> they wrapped rehearsal with an hour-long live show in front of an audience. That lip-synced but nonetheless convincing performance ended up in the film as the Cleveland concert. That comes at the two-thirds mark, and it's the final music scene in Almost Famous. Before we move on to our next pick, uh, two things. Uh, First, honorable mention for another great music film that came out in 2000, High Fidelity, uh, directed by Stephen Frears and starring John Cusack. Strong writing, a fictional band called the Kinky Wizards, a Bruce Springsteen cameo, and a breakout performance by Jack Black in one of his first roles. We absolutely love it highly recommend. Second, we want to tout the director's cut uh, for Almost Famous. It's called Untitled, uh, you know, like an old bootleg record. As best as we can tell, it's not available as a download. But if you're a fan of the movie, Spend a few bucks, get the DVD or Blu-ray box set. It's got some fun deleted scenes. We especially love the radio interview with Mr. Cosmic FM DJ in Tempe. It's also got great commentary, insider stuff, the whole Cleveland concert, and an audio CD of Stillwater Tunes. Again, highly recommend it. All right. We all know this. There is a fine line between stupid and uh, clever. (laughs) We're now headed to the wrong side of that line. Let's go from the sublime to the ridiculous. But before we do, let's take a quick pause for a word from our sponsors. Hello, Pantheon podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them.
0: Go to pantheonpodcast.com/slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, Rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the US.
1: It's under, rock and roll of creation.
2: We can recall a TV interview some years back with a couple of the guys from Van Halen, eh, probably on VH1. They were asked about, this is Spinal Tap, and their response was memorable. Sure, we saw it. We all went together on a night off. Uh, Yeah, no, we didn't think it was all that funny. Now, that seems odd, so the interviewer asked them to elaborate. Bassist Michael Anthony explained... All the mishaps and misadventures, you know, getting lost on the way to the show, equipment problems, the arguments, dealing with the music biz types, it all just hit a little too close to home. You see, a lot of those things really happened to them out on the road, and it wasn't humorous at all. It was just a big pain in the ass or worse. We've read and heard several accounts from other professional rockers that uh, corroborate uh, Michael's take. It was funny, sure, but in a cringy, chuckling-to-hide-your-embarrassment kind of way. Like, uh, ooh, shit, remember that? (laughs) The Rolling Stone review of This Is Spinal Tap from 1984, we we found it on Rock's back pages, states right in the lead paragraph that in this film, the line between art and life is blurry. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) The other night, this band that doesn't really exist was playing at a Los Angeles club called The Music Machine. The place was packed, jammed with the black leather and spikes crowd. I walked into the club and people started yelling, Nigel! They had these weird crazed looks on their faces, Nigel, Nigel's here! It's from the aforementioned Rolling Stone review by Michael Goldberg. He included the Spinal Tap show at the Music Machine nightclub in West L.A. April of 1984. The audience was not in on the joke. At least not at first. Many, if not most, thought Tap really was this bombastic, if somewhat dim-witted, metal band from the U.K. We can confirm that. We actually know someone who went. (laughs) We're still kicking ourselves for not going to. So let's meet the guys who filmed this just a little too real rockumentary and then turned it up to 11 kept the prank going in front of a live paying audience Spinal Tap was Rob Reiner's debut as a director. He also plays a bit part, our narrator, Marty DeBergi. Hello. My name is Marty DeBergi. I'm a filmmaker. I make a lot of commercials. That little dog that chases the covered wagon underneath the sink? That was mine. In 1966, I went down to Greenwich Village, New York City to a rock club called The Electric Banana. Don't look for it, it's not there anymore. But that night, I heard a band that, for me, redefined the word rock and roll. I remember being knocked out by their, their exuberance, their raw power, and their punctuality. Rob Reiner went on to become one of the best filmmakers of his generation. He's pulled dozens of major awards for iconic, significant films like Stand By Me, The Princess Bride, A Few Good Men, and many, many more. 27 feature credits all according to IMDb. And it all started with TAP. Shot with a handheld 16mm camera for a tiny $2 million budget. The other three creators were Harry Shearer, who played bassist Derek Smalls, Michael McKean, who played singer-guitarist David St. Hubbins, and Christopher Guest, who played the man, the myth, the legend, lead guitarist Nigel Tufnell. All three are competent musicians. In fact, McKean and Guest met in college when both of them were playing in bands. They tried to make it as rockers before moving on to acting and sketch comedy. Drummer R.J. Parnell and keyboardist David Caff ran out the lineup, and they played those parts in the movie, too. So the band you're seeing is the band you're hearing. And it's a matter of historical record that they pulled this act off convincingly, and hilarity ensued. (laughs) We, We just love it when hilarity ensues, don't you? honorable mention to the Ruddles, the Blues Brothers, and School Rock, but This Is Spinal Tap easily takes home the statue for funniest rock movie ever. We've got more to say about This Is Spinal Tap, and we'll circle back around in the main show when we get to 80s metal, but right now, uh, one more clip, and uh, we'll leave this behind. Big bottle. Let's shift gears now and get current. Let's talk about Daisy Jones and the Six, released in spring of 2023 and currently streaming on Amazon Prime. If you know, you know, Uh, but we'll run down the basic info real quick. The show is derived from the popular and really quite good novel of the same name by Taylor Jenkins Reid, published in 2019. Option and adapted by Reese Witherspoon's Hello Sunshine Media, production credits go to a veteran writer-producer team, Scott Neustadter and Michael Weber. A team of 11 writers and three directors are credited with the 10-episode series. As we went into production, we saw the news that Daisy Jones and the Six is up for a whole slew of awards, including nine Primetime Emmy nominations. It's a self-contained series, one season only, and we know of no plans for a second season or sequel. But Hollywood chases success. Seems like that's all they ever do. So there may be a follow-up after all. In competitive diving, some other sports too, but diving comes to mind, there's a thing called degree of difficulty. It's self-explanatory, no? Well, when we take on Daisy Jones and the Six, we're factoring in the degree of difficulty. So let's unpack that a moment. Our first two bands, Stillwater and Spinal Tab, well, they were not portrayed as big-time superstar acts. Stillwater was almost famous, trying to figure out if they were ready for primetime. Spinal Tap was way past their prime, just trying to hang on. Much different, much higher degree of difficulty for Daisy Jones and the Six. The premise of the story is that this was the biggest band in the world at the time, fall of 1977. Now, for perspective, here's a quick and very incomplete recap of the popular music landscape in 1977. The Eagles Hotel California came out at the end of 76 and spent the winter and spring at the top of the charts. Two months later, Fleetwood Mac put out their magnum opus, Rumors, destined for $10 million in sales and a Grammy for Album of the Year. Crosby, Stills, and Nash got back together and put out their first new music in five years. Elvis Costello released his superb debut album, My Aim is True. On the prog rock front, Yes released Going for the One, their best album in years. Peter Gabriel released his first solo album, Rush's fifth album, Farewell to Kings, dropped that summer. The Clash released their debut in the spring, Never Mind the Bullocks, Here's the Sex Pistols, K- out in the fall. The punk rock insurgency was officially underway. Led Zeppelin went on to what would be their final tour of America and included the biggest indoor show in history to that point, 78,000 at the Pontiac Dome in suburban Detroit. Pink Floyd also did a summer stadium tour that year in support of animals and so on. The point is, it was a really big year for rock. Given this context, the original music in Daisy Jones and the Six seems uh, a little bit small, maybe. It works well in the show, but on its own, the album Aurora is good, but not great. A couple of superb tunes. The title cut, written by Blake Mills, really stands out for us, but mostly it's just good. A good album is a nice accomplishment, but we dare say they were shooting for more here. At times, the fictional band is outshined by the soundtrack. You know, episode five, titled Fire, it's the best one, the hinge on which the entire story pivots. It opens with a montage with Roxy Music's Love is the Drug is the Backdrop. A great band, great song, by the way. And it's a great sequence, too, pushed along by the stellar arrangement uh, and Brian Ferry's lurid, needy vocal. But that's a lot of musical voltage right at the top of the show, and most of the Daisy Jones material just doesn't have that kind of juice. Another scene with a a great needle drop is the aftermath of Daisy's hotel room overdose. That's when she kicks her new husband to the curb for not being there when she damn near died. The song is Fleetwood Mac's Gold Dust Woman. And that raw, shattering chorus is salt in the emotional wound. Killer pick for the soundtrack. But again, the fictional songs suffer a bit by comparison. Now... We want to be very quick to say this, too. We are nitpicking. Overall, we thought Daisy Jones was terrific. Uh, Rock and roll fans, that's us, and that's you, have a lot to like here. And we respect the hell out of the ambition, the audacity of the attempt, taking on a big story like this. And we're really glad it's doing well. Strong viewership, good reviews, lots of award nominations, like we said studios chase success so we'll get more rock and roll content on the streaming services well we'll get more when the writers come back with a fair deal from the studios <laughs> well we believe they will eventually once again solidarity Found
1: me lost in a
2: the appeal of Daisy Jones and the Six is down to the raw talent and charisma of the two leads. Riley Kehoe is Daisy and Sam Claflin is Billy Dunn. A couple of powerhouses, especially Ms. Kehoe. Riley's got the pedigree. She's the eldest grandchild of Elvis Presley. And prior to Daisy Jones, she co-starred in a pretty good indie flick called American Honey. That's got uh, one killer soundtrack as well. Check it out we'll call out a couple of supporting players that we especially liked the fine character actor timothy oliphant as the tour manager rod reyes and sebastian chacon as warren rojas drummer for the six happy go lucky and unpretentious warren had the best perspective of the band in their situation out of all of them Chacone seemed to get all the laugh out loud lines as well I mean, we're guessing the writers fed those to him because they liked him, and <laughs> why wouldn't they?
1: I still need a drink for all the glasses in the sink From chasing a shot that went through hell For the record I'm fine With what's left of what's mine I almost took you by mistake For someone else You're just a one
2: a new golden age of television we've often read in here and there is something to that uh, lots to enjoy and thank goodness because without it we all would have gone bonkers during the pandemic but up until now nobody's done a really good strong fictional series centering on music there have been some attempts. Remember HBO's vinyl? What an expensive disaster that was. Uh, uh, The Idol, this year's HBO offering, (laughs) might be even shittier if that's actually even possible. A double yikes on that one. Uh, The Get Down on Netflix was so well-intentioned and, you know, it had its moments, but it came up short too, at least in our estimation. Our almost famous friend Cameron Crowe did a show called Roadies, and That had a great cast and some awesome musical cameos, but it never really found its voice and was spiked after one season. All this is to say that Daisy Jones and the Six easily leads the pack, best in class when it comes to rock and roll on the TV. We watched it when it came out, and we binged it again all the way through to prep for this podcast. And you know what? It holds up. It's pretty solid. So those writers in that little sketch we did at the beginning of our podcast today, once they get back to work, they're going to get their chance to rock and we'll see how it turns out. It's a transitional period for film and television, to put it mildly. The issues behind the current WGA SAG-AFTRA strike are deep and wide. As we write this, the parties are still very, very far apart from what we've been able to ascertain this much is clear. Like we saw with music in the late 90s and early aughts, the industry is going through what the economists call creative destruction, a fancy way of seeing the old rules no longer apply. And that is good news and bad news. For reasons both logical and emotional, we're firmly on the side of the creators. That said, there's going to have to be some give from all all the parties, if we're going to get folks back to work in film and TV to make those rock and roll shows. Till then, I'm Christian Swain. I've got my remote and I've got my popcorn and I may have stumbled on Sublime. But before I go, uh, we need to let you know who were the good friends who played our writers at the top. Let's hear it for Kellen Rikey as Donnie Failson, Lindley Ehrlich as Liz Limer, Jerry Danielson as Joe Conrad, and Courtney M. Anderson as Heller Joseph. Thanks as always. Keep up the rockin', and we'll catch you later.
1: I bought a bourgeois house in the Hollywood Hills With a trunk load of $100,000 bills Man came by to hook up my cable TV We settled in for the night, my baby and me We switched round and round till half past dawn
2: there was 57 channels and nothing on. 57 channels and nothing on. 57 channels and
0: nothing
1: on. Well, now, home entertainment was my baby's. Whistle. Rock
0: and roll archaeology It's written by Richard Evans and Christian Swain. Produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Jerry Danielson at Busy Signal Studios. Find all of our shows, notes, and links at pantheonpodcast.com. All songs can be found for purchase or streaming wherever you get your great music. Please pick up these amazing tracks. Contact us on social at Pantheon Podcasts on Facebook and Instagram. Tweet us at Pantheon Pods.